Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin here. So good to have you here with us today for episode 372 of the Speaker Lab podcast. Now, today I'm going to be joined by my friend Dory Clark to be talking about uh, what it looks like to keep perspective of the long game in a society where it's really easy to be focused on the short term. Now, Dory is a very successful author, speaker, educator, has been on the podcast before, and also recently released her latest book, The Long Game. Her business has grown and transformed through different seasons, and she's going to be sharing more about what she's doing to continue to thrive in the speaking industry. We're also going to be talking about the premium experience that she's been creating for her in-person gigs, how she's embracing virtual opportunities, and why it's more important now than ever to build a business with multiple revenue streams. We're also going to be unpacking more about her new book and what it takes to ensure a sustainable long game while also still providing for the day-to-day. We've got to think about long-term, but we also got to put food on the table right now. Dory demonstrates the intentionality and commitment needed to create a successful and meaningful career. Her clarity and encouragement are second to none, and I'm positive that you're going to walk away from this episode equipped to continue growing and improving. Dory is here to help build a stronger tomorrow by putting in the work today. So let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with Dory Clark. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, friends? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Good to have you here with us today as we are joined by Miss Dory Clark, a friend of the program. Uh, and we were, we were talking a little bit before we started recording here. Uh, last time you were on was like four years ago, um, which is crazy. It's been that long. It's crazy we've been doing a podcast that long, but uh, good to have you back. First of all, why don't you give us a little snapshot here uh, for those who haven't listened to that episode four years ago on, on who is Dory Clark uh, and, and how does speaking fit into your world? Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Grant. Uh, My basic deal, I describe what I do as helping individuals and companies get their message heard in a crowded and noisy environment. And I do that in a few different ways. I teach for a couple of business schools. I teach at Duke and Columbia, and I do a lot of speaking, uh, which is certainly something that we have in common. I do work with online courses and I write books. And the most recent one uh, just out from Harvard Business Review Press is called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Very cool. And so let's talk about in the past, especially in the past, you know, almost two years at this point, uh, what has your speaking business look like? And and maybe even pre-pandemic, like how much speaking were you doing? Who are you typically speaking to? And then how has that evolved and changed in the past year and a half, two years? Yeah. So like a lot of your community, uh, definitely things changed (laughs) during COVID with regard to speaking. I was doing somewhere usually between 30 and 50 engagements per year. And it, it actually peaked for me 
in 2015. In 2015, I, I went nuts. My book Standout came out and I decided I was going to go all in. And so I spoke everywhere all the time. I gave 74 talks that year wow. and officially decided that was too many talks. Yeah. And so I decided to scale back from there. Uh, but of course, you know, I went from, uh, from that number down to, um, you know, in, in 2020 or sorry, in 2021 this year, uh, I was scheduled to do two in-person talks and one of them was just canceled because of the Delta <laughs> variant. So uh, I've hopefully got one more scheduled in October. Uh, we will see if that persists. Of course, a lot of that has shifted to virtual. Uh, yeah. Some people I know are charging the same amount for virtual as they are for in-person. Uh, I have done that in instances where it was originally an in-person talk and then just got transferred to uh, to virtual. But in general, when it is set up as a virtual keynote, uh, I am charging 50% of my in-person rate. So the numbers have gone down. But fortunately, as we were discussing beforehand, I have been working in the online education space, doing online courses since 2014. I started very lightly then, sort mm -hmm. of exploring and trying to figure it out. I partnered with different organizations and did you know, a course with this one, a course with that one to try to learn about it. I eventually did courses on my own and eventually got a lot of them. I've done yeah. 25 courses now with wow. LinkedIn Learning alone. Uh, so the good news is that 2020 was able to be uh, a very successful year for me financially because what whatever I lost in terms of keynote engagements, I more than made up because of the uptake of online courses. But it's it's definitely been quite a journey. Yeah. So how do you think about that going forward? Then are you like how does how do you feel like speaking will fit into your business in you know 2022 and beyond? Well, I, I still really love speaking, and I would say pound for pound. Speaking is still the most fun thing that I do, speaking yeah. in person. And I think probably just about everybody who listens to your podcast feels the same way. There's something really special and really electric in, in terms of being in front of a crowd and connecting with people. So it's something that I intend to keep doing. What I think is coming down the pike is that because everybody has learned, of course, that so many things can be done virtually what it means is that in-person speaking is going to be a more special activity. It's mm. it's probably going to be rarer because, you know, for, for the kind of the, like just the dumb regular business, I think most people can be like, yeah, we can do that on Zoom. <laughs> um, but but also it really matters, you know, when, when you are choosing to go to a thing, choosing to go to a conference mm. or, you know, a company is bringing together its staff, it means something. And so because of that, because it is going to be more special, number one, one thing that I did during COVID, I raised my rates because I realized, look, if I am going to be traveling somewhere to speak, I want it to count. I want it to count for me and I want it to count for the client. And so I'm not going to be traveling around the globe the way that I used to, where occasionally I would do things for, you know, for lower fees or, you know, exposure, you know, whatever, pretty much no matter how good it sounds at this point, I think my personal bar has been raised where it's just yeah. like, um, no, <laughs> but I, uh, I, yeah, I actually jacked up my fee by an additional five grand per keynote because I, I realized there's going to be fewer of these talks but it's going to matter more. So let's make it count. It's a premium product. And if I'm actually going to be there in 
person, then let's let's treat it like a premium asset. How are you thinking about virtual going forward into the future? Are you wanting to keep doing it? Or are you just like, hey, virtual is just, we all agree, like it's not the same. And some speakers I talk to are like, it's not the same, but I love it because I don't have to leave the house. I can, you know, I still get the, uh, you know, good presentation. Um, you know, there's pros and cons to it, but um, there's, there's certainly the upside of, of, you know, maybe being able to do more of them and be home the entire time, always sleeping in your own bed, that sort of thing. So how do you see virtual fitting in or not fitting in going forward? Yeah, I'm perfectly content to do virtual talks. I, I think that it is going to continue. It's probably going to be a more a more common thing. I mean, there's just a lot of things that used to, that would have been conferences in the past that now are going to be virtual gatherings. And yeah. so they are going to need speakers and I'm happy to do it. I can't say that I love giving virtual presentations. It feels like I can do that. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I know I can do them well. I know I can be engaging. It's probably a little bit less um, meaningful or fun of an experience, but I'm happy to do it. And uh, as you mentioned, of course, you don't have to leave your house. It is good money that you are making for a one hour period from your home. So, uh, so that's, that's great. And I imagine that that is going to continue to be a part of my business as well. And it's in some ways, you know, all of these things serve as advertising just in the way that a video of a Ted talk uh, doesn't cannibalize the desire for the talk. You know, people aren't, you know, Oh, I saw this before. I never want to see, you know, him or her speak again. It's it's actually advertising where they say, oh, I loved that TED talk. Yeah, I want I want them to come to my conference. So I, I think that doing the virtual presentations uh, is beneficial for for us. Yeah, that makes sense. Now you you kind of a uh, and this ties re really well into your new book, The Long Game, where it sounds like you, like any speaker, has gone through these iterations of there's a time where speaking was a huge, huge part of your business. And now maybe speaking is a uh, still a big part, but a smaller part of what it used to be. Now virtual is a bigger piece and courses are a bigger piece, maybe bigger than they used to be. And you know, was, you're planting seeds, you're kind of dabbling with courses before now. And it's always just kind of evolving and changing. So how do I think about being a long-term thinker where I also have to pay bills to, today? Uh, and so how do you kind of balance that? Yeah, there's there's always that important balance. And one piece, I mean, this is a question that I have been thinking about for a long time, certainly not because I predicted COVID because I didn't, but there are a lot more pedestrian concerns that affect speakers. Um, you know, starting years ago when I was giving so many talks, like a lot of speakers, I thought, number one, what if there's a recession? probably conferences are going to be the first thing that are cut. That's almost always the case. So I, I knew that there was economic volatility possible in the speaking world. Number two, what if I get sick and I can't speak? You know, there's, there's always health risks um, in something where we have to be present in order to deliver it. So because of that, actually, my last book, the one that I featured you in, Grant, uh, was, uh, was called Entrepreneurial You. And it was a book about how to create multiple revenue streams in your business and how to, how to think about that. Because there are going to be times when certain revenue streams are booming and other times where, you know, they're, they're waning. And so if you have a number of different ways to make money... And, you know, for speakers, it could be a combination of speaking, selling books, membership communities, online courses, coaching, consulting, you know, there's a, there's a myriad uh, of ways that you can do it, uh, but it enables you to be more financially resilient because you have other possibilities. And to your point about making money now versus in the future, um, ultimately playing the long game, I think is about 
understanding that the most <laughs> the most important metric we can be thinking about is customer lifetime value. It's not what we're extracting right this minute. It is about over time, how are we building relationships that will provide for us, not just tomorrow, but five years and 10 years and 20 years from now. And it's not, of course, just customers, it's, it's everyone. Yeah. So I actually have uh, a rule that I put forward, I'll dare to call it a rule, in the book, which I call no asks for a year. And this is a philosophy of mine about networking. Because I think where a lot of people go wrong is they'll meet someone and they're they're just optimized way too much for the short term. They'll be like, oh, wow, I met Grant. Well, Grant knows so-and-so. I'll ask him to connect us. Or, oh, Grant writes for this publication. Let me have him connect me to his editor. And they do that like they've, they've met you 15 minutes before right. and they they've just burned the bridge. Like they don't realize it. But right. you are not going to do anything for that person because you're like, oh, my God, what a user. So I like to tell people over index in the opposite direction. Don't ask for anything with political capital involved for at least a year because you don't want them to think that you're using them. And you don't even want to come close in your own head to formulating an agenda because that you really need to get to know people and build that relationship. And once you're actually friends with someone, they'll do anything, but it's because they're your friend. So that's, that's one point that I like to make about playing the long game. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to something you were touching on about the multiple streams of income for a second, because I uh, totally agree with that. And it's also just this, it's this balance of uh, there are speakers who see all the different things that they could do. So I want to, I'm, I speak, but I also want to write a book and I want to do coaching and I want to do consulting and I want to do a membership site and I want to do a course and I want to do on and on and on the list goes. And yeah, like you can start to add some different streams there that's worthwhile, but you can also like stretch yourself really, really thin and be mediocre at a whole bunch of things versus like I do this one and maybe two things really, really, really well. So how do you find the right balance there uh, between between focusing on like, here's the core thing that I do. And maybe here's some other supplementary ways that I can deliver that, uh, and not stretching yourself too thin or not being mediocre at a bunch of things. So I actually have an easy answer for that, which is I advise people to add no more than one new revenue stream per year. It is actually not that hard to keep a plate spinning. It's really hard to get it spinning. Hmm, and fair. so yeah, you need, you need time to focus on learning how to get something started, you know, work out all the kinks, figure it out. Once it's started, you, you sort of know the procedure. You might even know the procedure well enough that you could hire an assistant or get help running it. Um, but it's going to take a lot of concentration upfront for you to understand the mechanisms. And so the good news is, you know, time passes. And if you have five years and you say, all right, you know, I, I understand I can't start a podcast and a blog and a video series and a membership site all in one year. But you know what? Over the next half decade, you can start all of that. You can absolutely do it as long as you are steady and focused in your progress. And at the end of five years, you've got a lot of a lot of valuable things going on. Hey friends, do you know the five steps to book more gigs and get paid as a speaker? Well, if not, listen up because these same five steps that help me to grow a seven-figure speaking career 
are all laid out in great detail in my latest book, The Successful Speaker, Five Steps for Booking Gigs, Getting Paid, and Building Your Platform. Whether you want to speak as a side hustle or your dream is to become a full-time professional speaker, I know what it takes. I share all of that with you in this definitive step-by-step roadmap. Let me be your guide. Learn from my mistakes. Get paid what you know you're worth to share your unique message on stage. If you want to read the first chapter for free or just check out the book, go to thespeakerlab.com slash book. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash book. Check out your copy of The Successful Speaker. Give us a snapshot again of what the, the big picture and big idea of the book is. So the the title of the book, it's The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And ultimately what, uh, what I'm driving at here, I mean, I think, you know, most of us can uh, sort of nod along and say, yeah, actually, you know, <laughs> there is a lot of short-term thinking out there. I mean, we see it in the stock market and corporate malfeasance. We see it on social media and people constantly comparing each other or feeling pressure around it. We know that that's not great, but also we have a hard time. Most people actually extricating ourselves from it. We know we should be thinking long-term and yet it's really hard to do it. And, you know, how how do we get the time? How do we get the space? How do we, you know, clear away all the dross so that we're able to have the kind of vision to say, well, wait a minute, where do I want to end up? And what should I be doing to get there? And so I wanted to write a book that would hopefully be able to help people with that process of, first of all, creating sufficient white space so they can ask those questions and really figure out where they want to go in their life and in their career. Uh, get a sense of how to do it. And especially, this is this is really one of the keys that I've seen in my own coaching clients and folks that I work with. It is really common for people to give up too quickly because in the moment, it is super hard to tell the difference between something that is not working and something that is not working yet. And I wanted to help people essentially stay motivated and stay encouraged on their path to doing something meaningful and not have talented folks give up too soon because oftentimes the most valuable things really do frankly take a while they do take longer than we want but if you're willing to put in the effort they're worth it to get there yeah and i think that speaks so well to to just the speaking industry that being a speaker is a long term game and we we tell speakers that all the time hey i want to book you know 50 gigs a year and it's like you can it's just going to take a minute to get there it's not like an overnight process or you you put up a website or demo video and think that it just magically happened. So how is it that speakers can, especially like early on in our career, like how do we start to shift the thinking of, yeah, I want that, but I just have to recognize like it just, it just takes a minute to get there, you know, and there's not a lot that you can do to necessarily shortcut or fast pass your way to, uh, to, to the results that you're looking for that it just it's consistently showing up over time. So is there anything we can be doing to just shift our, our mindset to think more long-term than short-term? Yeah, absolutely. One strategy grant that I thought was really interesting, and uh, this is a story that I include in the long game. So I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, a guy named David Burkus, who actually does speak himself. He's done a Had TEDx talk. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. He's uh, he's a great you know thinker, writer. He's, he's written a number of books, uh, Friend of a Friend yep. and Pick a Fight is his most recent uh-huh. one. David was telling me that a frame that he uses, he likes to introduce himself to people as what he calls the next 
next Dan Pink. And, uh, and Dan Pink, of course, for people who aren't familiar with him, he's a very successful best-selling author in the business world. And David says, look, it might be presumptuous to call myself the next Dan Pink, but you know, I'm on the path. So I might not be the next Dan Pink, but I'm, but I really could be the next, next. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. He's teeing up. And he said that something that was really helpful to him was he was actually realizing he, he asked Dan Pink years ago, he said, you know, he was just sort of frustrated. And he's like, ah, why is it not working? You know, why is it so slow? And Dan Pink says to him, well, look, David, you just hit is whatever I can tell you probably isn't going to be that helpful because honestly, you just need more time. You know, at the time when David received this information, he was kind of frustrated, like, why didn't Dan Pink tell me the secret to life? <laughs> but, but then he thought about it. And he's like, oh, Actually, that's true. And so he literally began charting it out and he realized, you know, I don't have the results that Dan Pink has today. And also I can't because I haven't been at it as long, but I do have the results that Dan Pink had in 2001. And so actually in the current issue of Harvard Business Review, I write an article about this, about the concept of strategic patience and what I call time handicapping. Because it's so frustrating. I mean, if, if you're a new speaker and you're like, well, why am I not doing what Brene Brown's doing? Right, you know, right. well, you know, she has she has some years on you in terms of her practice, her exposure, her brand, her platform, all of that. But are you as successful as Brene Brown was when she was one year into her business? Right. Probably you are. And so that kind of time handicapping can help you keep a lot of things in much more perspective and just not beat ourselves up it so much. Yeah. I think that's such a great point to, to think about. Not necessarily what is like in Brene's situation, like not what is she doing today to book gigs or to be a great speaker, but what was she doing in year one or year two? And so one of the challenges though, it can be to try to like understand what were they doing then and do those strategies that they were doing then to get the ball rolling in their own business, do those things still work today? So is there a way that we can kind of, I don't know, reverse engineer how someone got to the point. And again, not what not what's working for them today, but what worked for them originally that we can may maybe apply to our own business. Yeah, there's there's a number of ways. I mean, one that I'm a big fan of is literally archival research. Now, this is something that in some ways is easier than it used to be because of the web. It's also in some cases harder because of the web, because there's so much of a bias toward the current stories and things like that. But if you can actually be searching carefully through things like you know news archives or things like mm-hmm. that, it is always really interesting to see things like when was the first time that someone was mentioned in the New York Times? Yeah. And, you know, usually it's like, so, you know, somebody who's like a big Broadway star now. And it's like, and also performing was Joe Smith as the puppy, you know, and it's <laughs> like, oh, well, you know, that was, that's a little tiny part right there. But, you know, going back and saying, all right, you know, what, what was, you know, let's chart it out. Like let's dock their biographies. You know, you can, you can do internet wayback machine yeah. uh, things, you know, type into the internet wayback machine, see somebody's website. You know, what was Brene Brown's website like in 2003? Yeah. What were the articles that, you know, you can see like, what were the articles she had written or what was on there? What had been featured? And you can begin to trace it back and just get a sense of like, all right, what, what were they doing? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to see those moments before 
they got famous. Also reading longer form profiles where they're talking about their history and their background and their past. Almost the entirety of my book, Stand Out, actually, is attempting in some ways to answer this question. Stand Out is a book about about how do you become a recognized expert in your field? And I was fascinated by that question of understanding the point, because what we often get when we tell stories about famous people or people that are famous now is it's either in the cultural conversation, it's either like, oh, well, they were always famous, which is obviously not true. Mm -hmm. Or it's told usually like an overnight success, like, oh, and then she gave a TEDx talk and then, oh my God, you know, (laughs) like, okay, it's not quite like that either. So what, what was it like? What is the process that got people to that? And so I interviewed people like Robert Cialdini, like Dan Pink, like Tom Peters, to actually understand their thought leadership journey and to try to get a sense of what the process was like for them as their ideas were breaking through. So another possibility, and you know, for somebody who's already super famous, like a Brene Brown, it may be hard uh, to access them, although you can often access people who are you know, just a notch less famous. If you have a podcast or if you have a place where you write for you could potentially interview those people and ask those questions, you know, yeah. use it as a form of personal research for yourself and then share those findings with other people about what their journey really did look like. Yeah, those are some great ideas. Now, one thing I'd, I'd be also curious about is, is in business, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of going back and forth between seasons of sowing and reaping. You know, there's times where you're planting seeds and going... I, I can't see if anything's happening underneath the soil. You know, I'm watering it. I'm making sure there's enough sunlight there. I'm doing all the things I feel like I'm supposed to do. But sometimes you you may not know if you're doing the right thing or if you're putting in the right effort to get the results that you're going for until, you know, months or maybe even years later. And so how do you kind of think about doing the right thing? Am I making progress? Is something even happening underneath the earth that I can't see it? Because there is a time where maybe it makes sense to like, hey, this isn't working. Uh, and so maybe I do need to throw in the towel. And you make a great distinction there. Is this not going to work ever? Or is this not working currently, but it could work? So how do you kind of like make sure that you're just, you're doing the right things to, to end up in the, the result that you you're ultimately want? Yeah, well, I'm glad, Grant, that you're using the, uh, the, the the farming metaphors, because let me throw another one at you. What I suggest in the long game that people do is what I call looking for raindrops, because what I see oftentimes is that people who are getting frustrated with their lack of progress or seeming lack of progress is that the the vision that they have in their head is about what I will call like ultimate success. Like, yeah. oh, well, you're keynoting South by Southwest or, you know, oh, you're on the cover of Entrepreneur Magazine or <laughs> whatever it is. And honestly, it takes a really long time to get to do that. But in between, there are signs of progress. And at first, they are very subtle. They are so subtle that it's really easy to even you know, just miss them entirely if you're not looking for them. Yeah. Like it's like a, when a when a rainstorm starts and you kind of look around to your friends and you're like, "Did you feel any? Right. No, no, no. It's not re- well. <laughs> you know, right. and and you're just trying to figure it out. But it's specifically training yourself to look for those raindrops because when progress is starting, it does not look impressive, right? Yeah. It's like okay. How do you know you're making progress as a speaker? In Entrepreneurial You, I, I issued a framework. It was my Clark's Law of, of Speaking. And I think it sums it up in many ways. The first step of being a speaker is no one wants you to speak at all ever. No, The second phase of speaking is 
they would be willing to have you speak for free. Step three is they would be glad to have you speak and they will pay you a tiny bit of uh, insulting amount of money. (laughs) And then step four is finally, you can actually speak and get good money for it. We often think that's like the starting point. It's like, yeah, when I'm a speaker, that's going to happen. Like, no, that's like, that's already step four of uh, along the path of being a speaker. So what does it mean to look for raindrops when it comes to speaking? Well, it means that you were invited to speak at completely inappropriate things for no money. That's actually a sign of progress that anyone wants you you to speak at all. We need to take that in and be like, okay, I still might not do that because that's completely irrelevant, but it's a sign of progress that they asked me or getting to be on some random person's podcast, you know, that they invite you, you know, whatever from Uzbekistan wants you on their podcast. That's a raindrop and we should not be insulting toward it. We need to recognize, okay, we're getting somewhere. Maybe more people are starting to friend you on LinkedIn. That's because more people are talking about you and they've heard about you. Those are the raindrops that start to show that we're moving in the right direction. Now, one of the things that's also a little tricky about it is you may be making progress, but you're making progress towards the the goal necessarily that you're, you're not wanting to achieve, you know, and meaning like it's possible to really just overanalyze, overanalyze, overanalyze. I'll give you an example. Like uh, I'll talk with some speakers and they're, they're trying to think through like, okay, who do I speak to? And kind of what's the problem that I solve? Well, I could speak to, you know, this group or this group or this group. And I could talk about this, this, and this. And we talk about, hey, let's just narrow it down. Let's pick something and get going. And it's just like, we overanalyze, we overanalyze, we overanalyze to the point that we don't do anything. And we're just kind of, we're, we're, we're paralyzed uh, by fear, by, by almost overthinking what we need to be doing today. So is there any ways that we can kind of push past that to, hey, we can adjust and pivot like you were talking about earlier in your own journey. You've made numerous adjustments and course corrections and things that you had planned and things that were totally unplanned along the way. But none of that happens unless you get started in the first place. So again, how do you how do you kind of balance, I guess, the long-term thinking of like, ah, I want to make sure I'm going the general right direction here. But short-term is like, I nothing happens unless I take that first step. Yeah, this this is a really important point. I am a big fan. Sometimes people will will ask on podcasts or other places, they'll say, do you have a favorite quote? And I do, in fact, have a favorite quote. It is by Theodore Roosevelt. And it uh, it goes something like, in any moment of uncertainty, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The next best thing you can do is the wrong thing. And the worst thing you can do is nothing. Mm. So I am a big fan of action. I am a big fan of being proactive because here's the thing. All, all life is, all science is, is the process of validating or invalidating assumptions. And so you can think through a million things a million times, but you actually don't have proof that anything is going to work until you test it. You know, it, it doesn't matter how good your thinking is. You have to see if it works in the real world. Ultimately, you know, a point that I make, I have a whole section in the long game about rethinking failure. Uh, I think people are just, you know, so nervous, so worried about failing. And of course, failing in an absolute definitive way. Well, clearly no one wants to do that. You don't want to fail like, oh, and then I went bankrupt and lost every cent that I owned. Like that would be what I would consider a bad failure. But I think that what a lot of people don't really appreciate is that a lot of what the general public terms failure somehow, it's not actually failure at all. It's just testing. If you go into something saying, hmm, 
I don't know if this is going to work or not. Let's see. And then you test it and it doesn't work. Is that failure? I mean, maybe, I guess. I wouldn't call it a failure. I'd call it you tested something. And so as long as we hold things lightly and we're not putting too much on the table, we're just saying, hmm, well, you know, let's try a bunch of things and see what works. Then I think that's actually an incredibly low risk way that we can advance and get the data we need so that we can actually ensure that ultimately we're on the right path. Makes a ton of sense. Well, again, we've just scratched the surface on the book. The book is called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Uh, Dory, you've written uh, numerous books. I'd encourage everyone to check them out. Uh, If people want to find out more about you, what you're up to, where can we go? Grant, I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure talking with you. One of the best ways to, to find out all the things is to visit my website. It's doryclark.com. And in fact, I also have a free long game strategic thinking self-assessment. So if you want to dive in and learn how to apply the principles of strategic thinking to your own life, to your own career, your own speaking business, you can get it for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. Awesome. Dory, we appreciate the time. Thanks, Grant. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Speaker Lab Podcast. And before you take off, don't forget, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating and review within iTunes. We read every single one of those. It helps helps other people to find the show. Listen, we we don't charge anything for you to listen to these. We don't have any ads or anything. We do this because we want to serve and support speakers like you. So one small favor we ask of you is that you would leave us some type of a rating and review. Again, we really, really do appreciate that. If you're looking for more help, support as a speaker as you build and grow your business at whatever stage you're at, don't forget to check out thespeakerlab.com, thespeakerlab.com. We got a ton of free resources and tools over there. So again, check it out over at thespeakerlab.com. All right, my friends, that wraps up today's episode. We appreciate you hanging out with us. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.